Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, August 11th, 2010. Feast or famine, man, I got more to talk about today than I have time to talk about it. I have no idea what's going to make the cut today. I'll just go stream of consciousness. I'll wait for those interpromptings, those subjective little bumps, you know. I'm not really in tune to those, so I'll just have to wing it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, because when you have that clarity, uh, then you know uh, those messages that are distracting you away from your great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and calls all of us in the church to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Today is the day of salvation. There's a day coming when there will not, there, there will be no time left to proclaim the gospel and for people to repent and be forgiven. This is the time. This is the day that, that we have. And uh, we need to make the best of these days as we can and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It's through that gospel proclamation. Uh, Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's through the proclamation of the gospel, the telling of the story, of the forgiveness of sins, God's wrath uh, against our rebellion and sinfulness, and the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross, who was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Uh, it's through that gospel that God raises people from the dead, gives them repentance and faith, regenerates them, brings them back to life, and uh, and then causes, through the powerful, work, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to bear fruit in their life. And uh, Satan would, well, he uh, he doesn't want people to hear that good news. He doesn't want people to be regenerated. He doesn't. He, nuh -uh, no, no, no. He, you know, he's a, he's a saboteur. He's a a rebel of the highest degree, and uh, and so he does his best work in churches. And unfortunately, today's day and age, with uh, there doesn't seem to be any <laughs> theological correcting going on, and as a result of it. Um, yeah, radio programs like this have to come into existence because church bodies don't seem to want to do their job anymore. Yeah, we're supposed to proclaim the sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Yeah, well, the body of Christ has a way of self-repairing anyway. 
<sighs> okay, I'm looking at my uh, <clears throat> docket today. I, oh boy, what am I going to do with this? In no particular order. I haven't even, you know, I, I've come to the uh, the radio program today with lots of things we can talk about. Uh, there's uh, one of the things I want to talk about is is that apparently more about Anne Rice's um, motivations for quitting Christianity. By the way, she was a practicing Catholic. Uh, why she quit Christianity, and uh, apparently it has something to. There's more to this story. Um, her son is a gay activist. So well, I want to talk about this story that came up. Uh, well, actually, I was emailed a link to this uh, by a listener and worth passing along from the LifeSiteNews.com website. Um, the third eagle of the apocalypse. Talk about Catholics. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah, um, the th- third eagle of the apocalypse. I had no idea he was so musically talented. He has a, a song that is just all the rage on YouTube. It was almost 70,000 views. Um, and the name of this song is It's Prophesied. And so, yes, we're going to tune in to um, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse's uh, runaway viral uh, video, It's Prophesied, because I just want to hear him singing about the end times because it would just make my day. Uh, the, well, the story I wanted to get to yesterday that didn't get to uh, was from the Columbus Dispatch. The uh, headline is Churchgoers and Strippers Protest One Another in uh, Coshocton County. And uh, this is one of those ones where I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this going, oh, my, I wonder if this is a good thing or a bad thing. But I got to read the story uh, before we go on from there. And then uh, let's see here. We could talk about the Crystal Cathedral today, the family of the Crystal Cathedral. That would be the, the Schuler family. All those uh, on the payroll over at the Crystal Cathedral who are related to uh, Dr. Schuler are going to take a 50% pay cut for a couple of months to try to help tide things over. Uh, what I, you know, when uh, what I've noticed about companies. Uh, many times when uh, children of the founder of the company are on the payroll, they get paid lots and lots and lots of money for doing not very little. Uh, isn't the term for that nepotism? Just, you know, I, so I, this is good news. The uh, the Crystal Cathedral, uh, for the next couple of months, they, um, um, they, they will cut back on their nepotistic practices. Yay, that's such good news. Uh, let's see here. A uh, council worker loses case over God remarks. We could talk about this, uh, the ongoing persecution of Christianity in the UK. ELCA uh, reporting biggest drop ever in its membership. We could talk about that. And one of the ones I have got to talk about. <clears throat> see, I've got way too many stories on on tap here today. This is going to be busted up into two programs, I can tell you. But one of the ones I really, really want to get to is uh, an op-ed piece written by Matt Rossano uh, over at the Huffington Post. And, oh, this is just <laughs> – this is just uh, – he thinks he's so clever – um, but he, the name of the he, uh, the op-ed piece is, Would Evidence for God Mean the End of Atheism and Christianity? And as I <laughs> read the story today, I just was cracking up because, I mean, he thinks he's come up with a logical 
philosophical argument. And by the way, he's a professor and department head of psychology at Southeastern Louisiana University. And um, um, yeah, uh, just by way of opening shots, I really want to get to this this one today. Uh, Matt, um, you are a psychologist, not a philosopher or logician, and it shows, but uh, we'll take that apart uh, in the program today. And then for our sermon review, we have two good sermons. I'm going to play them back to back. It's not going to be a sermon cage fight. Uh, you can't have a sermon cage fight when two guys are on the same team. But what I'm going to do is um, a couple of weeks ago in the uh, liturgical calendar, uh, the lectionary readings fell on Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And uh, Jesus tells a parable of a guy who amasses a large fortune for himself and then dies. And um, and uh, so uh, we're going to listen to back-to-back sermons on this exact same gospel text, one preached by uh, the Reverend Swirla, Reverend William Swirla of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California, and the other by the Reverend Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in uh, Capistrano Beach, California. Now, these guys, there was no collusion. That being the case, um, these guys both came to similar conclusions, and it's a great sermon to hear in light of the abundant life, which is the prosperity gospel light heresy that we're hearing out of a lot of uh, seeker-driven type churches. And we, we, we chronicled this on our sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith regularly. It's also... Uh, good to hear in light of the full-blown prosperity gospel. And so, um, and Swirla talks about abundant life. And uh, so uh, he touches on this abundant life thing in his sermon, and uh, Hodel does a, a fine job too. And so we're, we're in hour number two, we're going to play both sermons back-to-back. Keep in mind a, a Lutheran idea of a sermon or a homily. They're a lot shorter than uh, than what you would get during the sermon time in a Reformed or Reformed Baptist church or even a Presbyterian church. So uh, the homily has a different function in our church, in the Lutheran church services than it does, uh, than the sermon does in a lot of, if you want the more in-depth stuff, you got to hang around for Sunday school is basically what I'm saying. (sighs) So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And um, I don't have any music for this guy, but this is going to be a musical segment. Um, our good buddy, um, the third eagle of the apocalypse, um, yeah, from his uh, YouTube channel, has a new song. Well, it's actually been out for just a little over a month, and the name of it is It's Prophesied. And uh, if you haven't seen the video, go to YouTube.com, and his user account name is Third Eagle Books. It's all one word squished together, so it's Third Eagle Books. And uh, Third Eagle Books is... Um, he has a a July third, twenty ten posting entitled "It's Prophesied," and he's standing beside a looks like kind of like a mountain pond or lake or something. He, he's on a grassy knoll overlooking a, a, a small body of water with lush vegetation in the background, and uh, he is yeah. You, you just got to hear it. <laughs> Yeah, that looks like a battery-powered Casio. Yeah, I, I had no idea that William Tapley was so gifted 
in the musical department. You know, I I think you should try out for America's Got Talent. I I've been watching the uh, America's Got Talent uh, this season, and uh, there was a woman on uh, last week. Oh yeah, wow. I mean, really large hair, like you know, beehive out of control kind of thing, and she played similarly to this. Your future's coming fra- fast, my friend. We're nearly at the end. Your freedom's gone. Your friends are gone. But when I'm raptured, I'll be gone. It's prophesied. It's prophesied. You can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> You can run, but you can't hide. I mean, he see. I this is these are horrible lyrics. I, he's talking about death and destruction and prophetic apocalypse, and he's got this smirk on his face, like, "Oh, you can run, but you can't hide, and I'll be gone because I'm going to be." Ra- I didn't know that Roman Catholics believed in the rapture. Apparently, he does. You can run, but you can't hide. It's prophesied. It's. Prophesied. Let's continue. Hang on, I that that's just rich. Um, hang, <laughs> hang on. Some will live, some will die. A few will go to meet his bride. He is literally singing about death and apocalyptic destruction. And boy, does he sound happy with his battery-powered Casio. Tribulation will arrive by Armageddon. You survive. You must get oil and trim your lamps. Because you won't get a second chance. It's prophesied, it's prophesied When those four horsemen start their ride There's pain and death on every side When those four horsemen start their ride (laughs) Oh, there's pain and death when those four horsemen start their ride Oh my goodness (laughs) Uh, okay, yeah, by the way, um, yes, uh, the apocalyptic end is drawing nigh. It'll, it'll be here one of these days. I have no idea when it's going to show up. And uh, um, I think it's a little sick and twisted to somehow, I mean, this is almost Westboro Baptist kind of glee for death and destruction and wrath and hate. Uh, <clears throat> Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Christ died for our sins. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Yeah, because uh, see the the um, the amazing thing about uh, you know about our message you know, is not that God is wrathful and will judge people. That's not the the big 
surprise. The big surprise is that he's forgiving and kind and merciful and died for our sins and doesn't what it's not his will that any should perish. <laughs> Apparently William Tapley, you know, on the other hand, he uh it's his will that some perish because I mean he is uh he's really into this song. Right. Seven thunders fill their speech. They will call fire down from the sky until the people watch them die. It's prophesied, it's prophesied. Jerusalem is where they'll die. They'll do their best to save us all. But very few will hear their call. I think he was a little off there. America is Babylon, and her story's almost done. She rides a beast, the beast is sore, and now that beast will burn that whore. It's prophesied, it's prophesied. Babylon, the, gets <laughs> the the lyric in case you couldn't hear <laughs> it's prophesied it's prophesied when babylon the whore gets fried oh my goodness oh oh man oh yeah apparently america's babylon yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everyone's come on, sing along. It's prophesied. It's prophesied. The merchants weep. The merchants cry. When Babylon, the war gets fried. Oh, let's go ahead and finish this. Obama. I have never seen Obama with, you know, with four heads or four wings. I really don't you think somebody would have covered that in the news if Obama had four heads and four wings? The Bible calls him the leopard king. It's the, the leopard king. So Obama's the leopard king. Not to be confused with the lion king, by the way. Prophesied, it's prophesied. Obama's on the losing side. He'll start a war that he can't win. Obama is the leopard king. Yeah, this is kind of catchy, isn't it? Yeah, that that's an understatement. The Antichrist is not your friend. Thank you for letting us know that, um, Mr. Third Eagle William Tapley. The mark you take will mean your end. Yes, you can buy and you will sell. But then your soul will burn in hell. It's prophesied, it's prophesied. You can run. 
think this would make a great, you know, beer song. You know, to go to the bar and sing this with your friends while tipping a few. Uh, it's about the only way you can protect your sanity at this point. Some will live, much more will die. A few will go to paradise. And that's the end. Whew. You just can't make stuff up anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) rendered practically speechless. Holy guacamole. (laughs) (laughs) He seemed pretty happy uh, when Babylon the whore gets fried. Yeah, that's some just... Yeah, that's some great music right there. Right on. Wow. (laughs) I just don't know what to say. I I I think it speaks for yourself. I'm I apologize for any damage they may, I may have done to your brain cells, and to your imagination in um, subjecting you to um, that particular song by the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, also the co-prophet of the end times, William Tapley. <sighs> Moving along. From LifeSiteNews.com, a story written by John Henry Weston, Anne Rice quits Christianity over bishops' opposition to gay marriage. Her son is a gay activist. This is kind of the other shoe that's fallen. I mean, Anne Rice has got quite a bit of traction. And, uh, you know, I, I, I read a piece that I thought handled it properly. And as the story unfolds, uh, there's a little bit more to this uh, then meets the eye. And um, let me read this uh, story from LifeSiteNews.com. Los Angeles, California, August 3rd, 2010. Famed novelist Anne Rice, a vampire novelist of all people, has revealed the reasons behind her Facebook announcement last week that she is leaving Christianity. The abrupt announcement came just over a decade after Rice returned to her childhood Catholic faith a conversion that she chronicled in her 2008 spiritual memoir entitled Called Out of Darkness. In a recent NPR interview, Rice, whose son is homosexual and a gay activist, said that her reason for leaving was the church's social teachings, which she said she has struggled with since her reversion uh, to practice. When asked to specify, she singled out the church's public opposition to homosexual marriage. Asked by NPR to spell out the last straws which drove her from the church, Rice responded, quote, I didn't anticipate at the beginning that the U.S. Catholic bishops were going to come out against same-sex marriage, that they were actually going to donate money to defeat the civil rights of homosexuals in the, in the secular society. This is not something I ever foresaw. I, I certainly knew that the Catholic Church was never going to marry gay people or accept gay clergy or sanctify same-sex marriages, but that they would go into the secular culture to defeat same-sex marriage in Maine and in California. That was something that I had not foreseen. When that broke in the news, I felt an intense pressure. And I am a person who grew up with the saying, 
that all that is needed for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing. And I, I believe that statement. So apparently Anne Rice, um, her son being a practicing homosexual and a gay activist, um, I, it, well, it sounds to me like uh, what we're dealing with in part is uh, a mother's love for her son. The problem is, is that her son, well, he's an unrepentant sinner. And homosexuality is a sin. And it doesn't help society when evil runs amok. She's kind of got her lines crossed. She's calling good evil and evil good. Uh, homosexuality is n not a positive thing for society. It's a negative thing. And uh, why do, how do I make such a claim? Well, it's it's a sin. And sinfulness never plays out positively, ever. Um, I can't think of a positive case for murder, can you? Anyway, let's see here. Uh, Rice says she will no longer receive communion in the Catholic Church. Asked if she would miss anything about the church, she replied, well, I, I miss the Mass terribly. I, I miss the Eucharist. I, I miss taking communion. Now, this is interesting. But Holy Communion is a communal meal, and I am I no longer belong to that community. Sharesh Dominic of Campaign for Life Catholic told LifeSite News that Rice's refusal to continue to take communion was commendable and that he hoped that uh, it would be an example to some self-professed Catholic po politicians. That's a good point. Quote, as sad as her leaving the church is, said Dominic, at least she is uh, being honest with herself and recognizing that because she is not able to accept the fundamental teachings of the Catholic faith, she is no co longer calling herself Catholic. And I think uh, Shiresh Dominic uh, has a great point here. If only uh, other people would be as honest. I, 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 you know, I'm not thinking of Catholics at this point. I think of men like Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Paget. Um, you know, men who are changing, uh, who are radically trying to change Christianity into something that it's not. Um, at least uh, Anne Rice has the moral fortitude to be honest and say, I can't agree with this teaching. And rather than staying in the church to try to change the church, she said, well, I can't continue being a Christian. I think that's honest. I think that's really honest. And I think of uh, you know the, the practicing politicians out there who uh, show up to church Sunday after Sunday, pray and receive the Lord's Supper, and, uh, and then turn around and uh, support, well, unjust and immoral laws. I don't care what side of the aisle they're on. Yeah, I think Anne Rice is, um, at least she's honest. But I think that sheds a little bit further light on the, uh, on the topic. All right, we're up on our first break. When we come back, um, want to talk about these uh, church growers and these, uh, the, the, the church goers and the strippers that are protesting each other in uh, Ohio. We didn't get to that yesterday. And we'll talk uh, about uh, Matt Rosano's piece, Would Evidence for God Mean the End of Atheism and Christianity? Well, <laughs> stay tuned. We'll find out how we can ever escape the horns of this particular dilemma. <laughs> oh, man. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. 
Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so. And the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, Christianity is not about living up to your doctrinal expectations. God has given us his doctrines. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is a listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. That's right. Financially help us out so that we can continue with our international reach here at Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith. You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says Join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, from the Columbus Dispatch, the story I wanted to get to yesterday. See if what, what you think. Is this positive or negative? This is kind of a bizarre uh, interaction. A uh, story of a church that, um, well, had the tables turned on them, if you would. Uh, Warsaw, Ohio, strip club owner Tommy George rolled up to the church in his Grabber Orange Dodge. That's an, that's a color, Grabber Orange. Okay, Grabber Orange Dodge Challenger. Drinking a Mountain Dew at 9 in the morning and smoking a cigarette he had just rolled himself. Uh, Pastor Bill Dunphy stepped out of a tan Nissan Murano, clutching a Bible in one hand and his sermon in the other, a touch of spray holding his perfectly coiffed dew in place. Okay. Inside the New Beginnings Ministries Church, Dunphy's worshipers wore polyester and pearls. Really? I mean, um, that that just sounds uh, like some kind of a bizarre 1970s uh, caricature or stereotype. Um, I don't. Uh, is polyester still? Uh, can you purchase that stuff? Anyway, outside George's uh, strip uh, strippers wore bikinis and belly rings. I'm sure the wives love that. Okay, both men agree it is a classic sinners versus saints, but George says it's up to America to decide which is which and who is who. Okay, so George is the stripper dude. Okay, so uh, the stripper guy, George, says it's up to America to decide who's the sinner and who's the saint. No, uh, Mr. George, actually, that uh, God is the one who gets to make that decision. And he's already declared that none is righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. So um, 
in in a, I guess in a real way this yeah, okay we continue Dunphy says God already has chosen Tom George is a parasite a man without judgment Dunphy said the word of Jesus Christ says you cannot share territory with the devil it does um okay familiar with that verse. The battle that was uh, heretofore played out in the parking lot of George's strip club, the Foxhole, a rundown garage-like building at uh, Coshocton County Crossroads called Newcastle has shifted seven miles east to Church Street. Every weekend for the last four years, Dunphy and members of his ministry have stood watch over George's joint taking up residence in the right-of-way with signs, video cameras, and bullhorns in hand. They videotape customers, license plates, and then post them online, and they try to save souls of anyone who comes and goes. Now, the dancers have turned the table, so to speak, fed up with the tactics of Dunphy and his flock. They say they, say they have finally accepted his constant invitation to come to church. It's just that they've come wearing see-through shorts and toting super soakers. Uh, they bring lawn chairs, and yesterday, anyway, grilled hamburgers, monster energy drinks, and corn on the cob. Uh, they sat in front of the church and waved at passing cars, but largely ignored the congregation behind them. Likewise, churchgoers largely ignored the dancers, except for Stan Braxton. He stopped and held hands with Lola a 42-year-old dancer who made $200 on her Saturday night shift and prayed for her salvation. Lola, who wouldn't give her last name, said she was grateful for Bracton's prayers and his time. The women don't come here, after all, without their own version of religion. They bring signs with scriptures written on them in neon colors. Um, uh, <laughs> so the strippers have done some Bible study here, and uh, one of their signs has Matthew 7.15 on it. says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Um, kind of an odd passage for um, strippers to be. And then Revelation 22.11, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. Uh, yeah, apparently these uh, strippers are in serious need of some Bible study, although by seeker-driven standards, I mean, they, they handled the Bible just perfectly fine. Uh, Greg Flair is, exec uh, is executive director, director of the Ohio Owners Coalition, a group of show, show bar and club owners. He called the women's protest extraordinary, saying he's never heard of anything like it in the country. George said that the protest has been a long time coming. He sued the church in federal court several years ago, claiming a violation of his constitutional rights, but he lost. Now he said turnabout is a fair play. When those morons go away, we'll go away, George said. The great thing about this country is that everyone has a right to believe what they want. He said uh, club op the, his club operates within the law. Dunphy said it does not, it does not that it must close at midnight instead of its regular 2 or 3 a.m. Coshocton County Prosecutor Bob Batchelor said Friday only that he, the sheriff and the city prosecutors, are, quote, aware of the situation. Gina Hughes spent the morning soaking up the sun in her striped bikini, mostly ob oblivious to the fire and brimstone being preached in the tidy church building. The 30-year-old married mother of six said she has danced at the foxhole for a decade and holds the title of house mom. That means even though she still dances, she also watches out for the six other women who work there. She said she makes $2,000 a week. 
the church people say horrible things about us, Hugh said. They say we're homewreckers and whores. The fact of the matter is we're working to keep our own homes together and to give our kids what they need. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's um, better ways to do that. Dunphy said that, that it's not that simple. He said he constantly offers the women help, a chance at redemption. I tell them I will put a roof over their heads and, and your bills will be paid and your children's bellies will be fully said and they don't come inside. The first few weeks, Dunphy piped the sermon outside, but that agitated them, he said, and made them dance in the streets. <laughs> Okay, so he had the sermon piped outside, and then that led to dancing. Can't have that happening. Uh, He said that their presence has united his church members and reinvigorated their mission to shut down the club. They have now seen uh, the evil firsthand, Dumphy said. This has just made us stronger. George laughed at the notion. They're just mad, he said, because their wives won't let them come to my club. So that's the story. And um, I... You know, um, here's here's the uh, issue that I'm seeing here. I'm wondering if uh, Pastor Dunphy is uh, suffering from a mission shift. Okay, mission shift. The reason I say that is uh, because you know I now I agree that uh, strip clubs are a, a wart on the uh, back end of humanity. I completely agree that it, this is sinful and this is terrible. And, uh, and, and at the same time, I also have a firm belief that Christ died for the sins of those strippers and for Tommy George and his uh, uh, bizarre way of doing things. And that being the case, I, you know, I, mm, I do recall a story in Scripture that where, um, well, businesses were adversely affected, sinful businesses were adversely affected by the preaching of the gospel. And, um, yeah, let me see if I can find this really quick here. Um, pulling out my computerized Bible, I didn't have this queued up before we we did this. Um, the, the, um, the story is found in the book of Acts, and it's Acts chapter 19. And uh, Acts chapter 19. And let's see here. All right. So Paul is, I think he's in Ephesus. Yep, he's in Ephesus. Okay, so let's see here. Now, um, so Paul is in Ephesus. And, I mean, all kinds of stuff is going on here in, 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 in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. If you have your Bible, flip on over to there. And here's what it says. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. Now, this is not a normative thing. So if you find a televangelist who's selling you these things, don't send your money into them. But uh, God was doing extraordinary things so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the uh, itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Uh, and um, so they were trying. So we have uh, uh, basically unconverted Jews trying to cast out demons using the name of Jesus. And it says, uh, and, and but the evil spirits answered these uh, seven sons of Sceva and said, Jesus, I know Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Yeah, these are not good words. You don't want a demon to say something like this to you that because the next thing that would happen to you is a royal um well, rear end kicking, and that's exactly what happened to these poor guys. 
Uh, seven sons of okay, so they are okay. So and the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them. Seven of these guys, and then overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Yeah, that's got to be embarrassing. Um, and then and, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Let me continue. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, I've, I have uh, been there. Uh, I must also see Rome. And having uh, sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. This is one of the early names for Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, um, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business that we have our wealth. And, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also, uh, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, so that the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed out together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Now, I read this to make this point, and here's the point, and, and that is is that um, I, I, I fear and, and maybe I, I just have the wrong take on this. My, I, I, I fear that uh, Pastor Bill Dunphy there in Ohio may be going about this the wrong way. I mean, and see, here's the deal. I mean, he's going for kind of what I would consider an easy target. You know, I mean, strip club. I mean, few, few if any, are going to really come to the, uh, you know, the fence of uh, of a strip club. But the thing is, is that there's supply. And then there's demand, okay? So when we look at a free market, there's supply and demand. And currently in that part of the world, in Ohio, um, strip clubs are legal. And uh, and Tommy George is operating within the legal parameters of the law. Now, it, it, I agree. It's absolutely sad. This is just absolutely terrible that these women are basically selling themselves and being exploited sexually like this and that this is how they make their money and that they feel so strongly that this is really the way the only way in which they can put food on the table we won't deal with that argument straight up but let's let's just call it a tragedy now what does this show this shows that sinners do sinful things because that's what sinners do now in ephesus okay where the apostle paul spent quite a bit of time earlier in that in that portion of scripture we find out this basically Paul every opportunity he had 
he proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified for sins and claimed him as the Messiah and preached against idolatry and called people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. He did it in the marketplace. He did it uh, at a public uh, forum at a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And um, and he was there for several years. And the And God yielded fruit through the preaching of the gospel. And so much so that people were regenerated. They repented of their sins and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And then their lives bore fruit in keeping with that repentance. So much so that we had sorcerers who, people who were practicing witchcraft, they burned their scrolls. And it was a huge amount of money that went up in smoke. And it, things got, I mean, God blessed the preaching of the gospel so mightily that what ended up happening was is that the guys who were making money selling little idols, you know, silver shrines of Artemis at the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So here you got at one of the great man-made structures of the ancient world, the great uh, temple to Artemis. Beautiful temple from what we understand from antiquity. I mean, an amazing architectural feat. Okay. Seven wonder. This was, this was a, a big place for, you know, people to show up, pilgrims to come from around the Mediterranean to come and worship Artemis. And, uh, they were selling silver shrines made to Artemis. And so, at such an impact that the preaching of Christ and him crucified had for our, for our sins had on Ephesus was that it ended up um, causing the um, the idol market to completely shrivel up and die. Now, Paul could have, you know, gone the way of um, Pastor Bill Dunphy, and he, he could have gotten some Christians out there and, and you know, gotten put together some kind of signs or, or put, you know, did some kind of a protest, protesting Artemis because Artemis is an evil idol, and he, and he could have, you know, been constantly standing watch and vigil like, you know, Westboro Baptist Church right outside the gates of the uh, Temple of Artemis. And to let everybody know what evil and wicked people they were and how they're going to burn in hell because it's prophesied, um, you know, for worshiping Artemis. But he didn't see Paul wasn't just about protesting. And then that really was kind of that's that isn't really what his motivation was at all. He wanted to proclaim Christ. And see, that's the message that we're given. So if if I could spend a few minutes with Pastor Bill Dunphy, I appreciate his zeal and his energy and, and his passion for wanting to close down uh, this strip club. That being the case, I think the greater effort would be for him to find a way to reach everybody in town with the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross, rather than, you know, then basically going with a frontal assault against the strip club, which is really in, in, the, in the long run is a waste of energy. And my question is, how many people are hearing the good news of the forgiveness of sins? Instead, do an end run. Do, do what Paul did in Ephesus and, and focus on the good news. Focus on repentance and the forgiveness of sins, Christ and him crucified, the cross, and bringing that message powerfully and passionately to everybody in that community. 
and see if Christ doesn't bless the preaching of the gospel, regenerate the lost sinners in that community, and let that end up being the tipping point that leads to basically the demand decreasing at the strip club. I mean, they've got bills to pay, and if those women aren't making enough money to get by because there's nobody showing up anymore um, at the strip club, maybe that's a, a better way to fight it because by going at it that way, the gospel is being proclaimed and Christ is regenerating people and you know, bringing new birth. They're being born again, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. I, I see that. See, I think that's a more positive way of, of doing it. And I think it would be more effective. Now, in the short run, it may not have as much of an impact. But in the long run, that's the one that's going to make the difference. Okay, one more um, <laughs> one more story before we go to our second break and then uh, c- come into our good sermon reviews today. Um, uh, well, I, I, in fact, I have some music for this. Um, <clears throat> I, I would like to uh, uh, announce the, uh, the very, very first um, public performance. You know, as we go into, as, as I go into this Huffington Post story, and you know, the Huffington Post is full of progressives and um, emergent types and uh, their op-ed type thinking. Um, I would like to, for this segment, uh, introduce our new segment music here. And this is the um, postmodern progressive philharmonic orchestra. Did I mention that the uh, the uh, postmodern progressive philharmonic orchestra? Um, one of their major philosophical ideas is that they have been set free from the bonds of modernist and, lo- and logical uh, m- music, and um, they're no longer bound by the white male mentality when it comes to music and notes. That's just breathtaking. Anyway, <laughs> I uh, that trumpet and fanfare from the postmodern progressive philharmonic orchestra um, is for the uh, <clears throat> this our, our uh, op-ed piece written in the religion and science section of the Huffington Post entitled "Would Evidence for God Mean the End of Atheism in Christianity?" by Matt J. Rosano, who is the professor and department head of psychology at Southeastern Louisiana University. Apparently, he needs to spend some time doing remedial logic and. Um, Philosophy, But let me read. Uh, A complaint often voiced by scientific atheists is that there is simply no evidence for God and therefore belief in the old conjure is thoroughly unjustified. Frightened, witless by this uh, snort, creationists, and I include intelligent design uh, advocates here, scurry about frantically trying to provide such evidence. Uh, But what would scientific evidence for God look like and what implications would it hold? 
<clears throat> we'll get back to this question here. The astronomer uh, Fred Hoyle famously remarked that nothing shook his atheism quite like the apparent fine-tuning of the cosmos for life. For Hoyle, the delicate balance of our universe's physical constants vaguely approached what might be called evidence of God. Others have remained unimpressed by this evidence. They point out that if there are an infinite number of universes out there, and as some cosmologists contend, then invariably some are going to have physical constants like ours. No divine fine-tuning is required. Of course, the faithful can always retort that God is the ultimate author of all these universes because God loves diversity. In the end, the physical constants might hint at something divine, but they are hardly convincing. Hang on, it gets better. <clears throat> but they are hardly convincing. This little episode highlights the absurdity of treating God as a hypothesis. He's impossible to pin down as might be expected from someone whose job description includes being infinite and everywhere. But as a thought experiment, let's set aside this little problem and assume that the scientific atheists and creationists are right, and God can be treated as a hypothesis. If so, there ought to be conditions under which the hypothesis receives support, possibly even strong support. The ramifications of this are just too intriguing not to consider. If the, if the physical constants fail at convincing evidence of God, then what might succeed? In his book, Universes, philosopher John Leslie conjures up a rather fanciful scenario for potential God evidence. I'm taking a few liberties here in order to make Leslie's example a bit more fun. Imagine, obviously intentionally engineered artifacts descending harmlessly from the sky, for God doesn't want to hurt anyone, each with an engraved label saying, Made by God. Scientists are able to perform definitive tests on these artifacts and conclude, beyond all doubt, that they have been fa fashioned by an omniscient, all-powerful agent. Now, this may seem too whimsical to be taken seriously, but the important point is this. However one envisions convincing scientific evidence of God, let's suppose we've got it. Let's further suppose that this God is pretty much the God that we all expected to find. I'm not sure what he expects, so I can't really grant them. He says, it's not Aristotle's reclusive thought contemplating itself God or Plato's disappointingly limited demi-urge but the golden rule, the Ten Commandments kind of God with whom we are all pretty familiar. The God is, this God is now on the same footing as gravity, evolution, and the germ theory of disease. He is an accepted scientific fact. Now what? Well, nothing major, except for uh, only the end of both atheism and Christianity. <laughs> to which you go, what? So let me see if I have uh, your argument straight um you're basically claiming uh professor rosano that um if we had evidence that god existed you know some kind of certain ev you know, just hyp hypothetical evidence that god existed that that would mean the end of christianity R really how did you come to that conclusion <laughs> well let's uh, continue he says if scientific atheists are true to their convictions then it seems that they have no choice but to become theists. Their worldview is based upon evidence, and the evidence says there's a God. 
Um, have you read Romans 1? Romans 1 talks about how even nature basically you know, gives us the glory of God and men suppress the truth in the unrighteousness. Um, geez, you know, let, me, let me give you an example. Okay? By the way, we do have evidence that God exists, and it's testable. Okay, Jesus Christ claimed to be God in human flesh. Yeah, it's true. That's who he claimed to be. And he proved his claim by raising himself from the dead. No no, no doubt about it. Now, as part of his claim prior to that, I mean, the miracles that he performed testified about who he is and who he was. Now, let me do a quick word search here. I'm you know, I, Again, I did not plan on pulling this passage up, but it's worth um, reading here. Um, uh, John chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, flip on over to John chapter 11. I want to point something out to you in the text here. This is the um, the story of Lazarus uh, being raised from the dead by Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to pick up in the middle of the story where Jesus actually shows up after you know, shows up in the town after. Um, Lazarus is already dead. So I'm going to pick up at John chapter 11, verse 28. Watch this. Uh, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. So when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was uh, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see, and Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying. So then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laying it aside, uh, laying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there would be an odor, for he's been in there for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, Thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And he, and when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, keep in mind here, Jesus just raised somebody who's been dead for four days. Okay, Raised him from the dead. They were there. They witnessed it. So they went and reported this to the Pharisees. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, "'What are we to do for this man performs many signs?' If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, Well, you know, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. <clears throat> no good deed goes unpunished. But So here's what's going on here. Jesus raises somebody from the dead, and you know, which is basically an attestation to his claim to being God. And what did the Jews do? The the religious leaders? <laughs> they they don't fall on their faces, repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. At that point they decide they're going to put him to death. Now, this is just some examples of the evidence that has existed through history of the existence of God. Not only do we have Jesus as, you know, being God in human flesh, by the way, we've, we can tell you what God's like. Look at Jesus. That's who he is. Okay. But we also have in the Old Testament, I mean, look, take a look at the whole Exodus account. You have millions of people uh, being led out of Egypt, out of slavery through the powerful workings of God and his glory and his presence was right there in the camp of Israel the entire time. And yet over and again, the, the, the people of the children of Israel, they were guilty of unbelief. And yet the evidence was right in front of them. This is the God who parted the Red Sea, who defeated Pharaoh, killed the firstborn, caused all the ten plagues of it in Egypt, led them out by a mighty hand, and yet they did not believe. There was evidence right in front of them, and yet they did not believe. So, um, <clears throat> uh, Professor um, Rossano here um <sighs> I mean, his hypothetical situation is kind of trumped by some real data that we do have, by the way, which then lends the next thing. That he, he claims that if we had data, you know, evidence for God, that that would somehow destroy Christianity. What he doesn't understand is that Christianity isn't based upon mythology. Christianity is based upon historical events. Uh, were God in human flesh, touchable, hearable, performed miracles, proved it by raising himself from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So uh, he's not really dealing with Christianity at all. And if there was scientific evidence, it wouldn't overthrow Christianity. But watch his argument here. This is where it gets really silly. Okay, so it would, okay, okay, so the, this would mean the end of atheism and Christianity. If scientific, okay, I read that. So he says, but it's also the end of Christianity. For those who find Christianity to be stubbornly, uh, to be a stubbornly abhorrent strain of the religion virus, this ought to be a moment of much rejoicing. How so? A fundamental tenet of Christianity is free will. It, it is no stretch to say that Christianity without free will is simply not Christianity anymore. Actually, uh, Professor Rossano, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Christianity does not teach free will. It's not a biblical doctrine. This is a philosophical that's a philosophical idea that got stuck into Christianity that doesn't exi that doesn't belong there, because Christianity teaches that we're all dead in trespasses and sins, and we don't choose by our own free will to believe and trust in God. No, we have to. Uh, faith in trust in God is a gift. But not only that, 
Christianity doesn't say that if you believe in God that you're a Christian. Mm-mm. That makes you a theist. Okay? Belief in God just makes you a theist. There's many people who believe in God. Jews believe in God. Muslims believe in God. Uh, you know, Hindus believe in lots and lots and lots of gods. Belief in God is not the thing that makes you a Christian. The thing that makes you a Christian is, is the distinct is a very is belief and trust in a distinct God, the God of the Jews in human flesh, who is Jesus Christ, and it's trusting in Him for forgiveness of your sins won by him on the cross through his shed blood and and trusting in him for your salvation. That's the thing that makes Christians different than theists. But see, this is just convoluted silliness that he's writing here. So he's saying that uh, it would be the end of Christianity if there was evidence for Christianity uh, for God. This is just silly. This is stupid. Okay, so and he's basing this on the idea that if the well, one of the fundamental tenets of Christianity is free will. No, it isn't. Jesus Himself said, "No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." Read, uh, read, um, uh, Gospel of John, chapter six. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or John chapter one. Not born. Everyone who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of a human decision or the will of the flesh, but born of God. Christianity does not teach free will. This is just a spurious argument, and it's flimsy at best. Okay, so a fundamental tenet of Christianity is free will. Got that. So the Christian God grants humans free will and will not interfere with its exercise. The Bible doesn't teach that. Humans are free to believe or not believe, free to follow God's law or free to sin and separate themselves from God. No, actually, you don't understand Christianity. It says we've all sinned and are all already separated from God. So God condemns no one. No, it says God's condemned everybody. People condemn themselves. Well, yes, that's true in a sense. This is all standard mainline Christian theology, and it all gets utterly demolished by convincing scientific evidence for God. No, it's not standard mainline Christian theology. You, sir, are not a Christian theologian, and this is a straw man argument. <clears throat> So, he says, we really aren't free to believe or not believe in germs, gravity, evolution, or other firmly established scientific facts. We can foolishly try to deny them, but their effects are with us and their laws hold, hold regardless of our attitude. If I jump off a cliff, I, it, it matters not a whit whether I believe in gravity. I'm going to fall. The laws of physics, uh, Mendel and genetics, uh, viral contagion, etc. My beliefs about all of these things are irrelevant. I follow their dictates. I suffer or enjoy their consequences. The Christian God is not supposed to be like that, or at least not in this life. I, where did you get this information from? Seriously. He says, his laws are not the laws of physics. One believes in him and follows the lo his laws out of love and gratitude, not because of being compelled by necessity. It's my choice if I want to hate my neighbor. No, actually, you're dead in trespasses and sins, and you hate your neighbor because you're sinful. That's just what you do. I see if I, if I see a greater immediate gain from not doing unto others, then I should be able to do that and to do that, and God can't get in my way. Well, actually, he is eventually going to get in your way. That's the thing. He's giving you a time to repent and be forgiven because uh, you're going to meet him face to face someday. Are you ready? It says, but if God is like gravity, then I will suffer the consequences of breaking his laws just as surely as I break my neck if I step off of a cliff. Love of God is as meaningless as love of the inverse square law. 
See, that's the thing is, is that you are going to stand before God. He's going to convene his court. Read Daniel. Uh, start chapter 7. God's going to convene his court and call us into his courtroom. Um, and you're either going to hear guilty or not guilty. You are either guilty of sinning and you will go and spend an eternity of hell in hell, or you will be declared not guilty, not because you aren't a sinner, because we all are, but because Christ has died for you and imputes his righteousness to you and his your sin was put on him and he suffered the consequences for your sin already on the cross. Anyway, this I mean, this is just sophistry. I mean, this is just... Oh, man. I, don't you love it when liberals and progressives do their best to overthrow Christianity? They're, they think they're so clever, and yet I'm convinced that... Uh, um, Professor Rossano really should go back to practicing psychology and should stay away from logic and philosophy and theology because it's obvious that he is not skilled nor qualified to be speaking on such things. Okay, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We've got two good sermons for you. They're short, but you'll love them both. God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of 
giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music. I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Well into hour number two here. It's uh, sermon review time, and we've got two good sermons that uh, talk about, well, the deceitfulness of making money an idol. Play both of these sermons so you can hear how two pastors have handled the same text. And this is a counter, biblical counterpoint against the abundant life heresy and the uh, prosperity heresy that we're hearing so much of. the bad and the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermons there's two short ones one comes to us via holy trinity lutheran church in hacienda heights california pastor william swirla presiding he will kick off our sermon reviews today and the name of his sermon is abundant life not abundant stuff it's a good name and his sermon is taken from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, which I will read shortly here. And then our second sermon today comes from Faith Lutheran Church in uh, Capistrano Beach, California. And the sermon is preached by the Reverend Ron Hodel. And his sermon is entitled, Laying Up Treasure. Again, taken from the text, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Let me kill the music here. What, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read the gospel text for these sermons. <clears throat> if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 12, I will begin at verse 13. This is the gospel text that forms the basis of these two brief homilies slash sermons. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, but Jesus said to him, Man... Who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, 
the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That is the text that makes up the basis of these two sermons, and I got to tell you, if you are if you love the prosperity gospel or you love hearing that God has a big wonderful plan for your life and it's all about the thing you can tell that you're blessed because you have stuff yeah this sermon's going <clears> to <throat> well both these sermons are going to well just let me just say it this way they're going to um speak to you boldly here's the reverend William Swirla in the name of Jesus it's all about money this morning, and stuff, and possessions, and how you can't take it with you, and how foolish it would be to try, and also however you, how you will never enjoy whatever riches you have if you turn wealth into a religion and you make an idol out of things. Now, when it comes to wealth, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is an expert. Most people think that he's Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, the richest king in the history of Israel. He had it all. To put it in modern terms, he had fast cars, he had houses, he had women, he had personal chefs, he had a wine cellar, he had Egyptian horses, he had gardens, you name it, he had it. He was the Middle Eastern version of the great American dream. He was over the top in consumption. There wasn't anything that he couldn't have and that he didn't have. And now he's writing to us to tell us what that's like, because, boy, we would like to know, wouldn't we? His report from the lap of luxury, vanity, emptiness, nothing there, there. Chasing after the wind, boxing the air. You work and work and work, and then some fool enjoys all the benefits of your work. Or the economic bubble simply bursts and your paper profits evaporate. And all that you've worked so hard for, all that you've planned for, it's all gone. Like the wind, vanity, emptiness. You don't like to hear that, do you? You know it's true. You just don't like to hear it. Especially don't like to hear it from the pulpit. Didn't wake up this morning to hear that. Didn't want to hear that. You know, that's why prosperity preachers are so popular. We love that stuff. That's why Joel Osteen can pack them in like crazy. And I have to name the name because he's the worst among them these days. He's, he's the worst of this peddler of false gospel. He promises the abundant life to those who do it his way. 
You can have it all in abundance. God is going to give you in abundance, he says. Whatever you want and more, pressed down and overflowing, cars and clothes and houses, ask and it will be given you. And he's saying this to thousands of people who, judging by the way they're dressed, are already doing pretty well out there in Houston. And he promises more and more and more if you just play the game right. I wonder if this man has ever read this morning's gospel that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. When Jesus promises life in abundance, he does not mean an abundance of stuff in this life. In fact, the parable... Listen carefully. You want to talk about abundant life. This is the corrective. ...of the four kinds of soil would warn us that an abundance of stuff in this life can actually get in the way of the productivity of the Word and choke out the very life that the Word is trying to create. We learn this idolatry of stuff and money very early in our lives. It comes with the first allowance. It comes with the first thing that we get into our little hands that we can say, this is mine and not yours. It comes with all those rules like don't spend it all in one place. I don't know where that comes from, but there's some religious book somewhere that says you're not supposed to spend it all in one place. Why not? Might be fun. The kid gets a $5 allowance and he goes and he spends it on ice cream for all his friends and then he gets chewed out at home for spending it all in one place. And he learns that money is more important than his friends. We learn the power in money is stored wealth. You know, we don't, we're not like that man, that rich man whose land yielded the big crop. We don't have to worry about building better, bigger and better barns. We can simply gather up our money and we can put it in the bank or we can stuff it in the mattress. Or if you don't take the government's word on this paper stuff, you can buy some solid gold and bury it somewhere in the backyard. And the beauty of money is that you can store it. It doesn't rot. You can store your wealth and unlike grain, it doesn't get moldy. It may not earn much interest these days, but at least it's not going to rot, although the deficit is doing a nice job of rotting the value even of our money. We learn early in life to envy the kids that have more, the kids with the latest video games, the kids that have all the cool stuff, the latest Xbox, or whatever it is that we want and they have. We grow up coveting even more. There seems to be no end to the things that we want, and there's no end to the stuff available to us. And we mistake the abundant life for an abundance of things, for a big portfolio, for bigger houses and faster cars, and that celebrity lifestyle. And the cost is great. Check in on the celebrities. Look at the lives of the rich and famous. They're not looking real happy. Uh Uh-uh. And Solomon tried to warn us. He's been there. There's nothing there there, he says. But do we listen? Two brothers came to Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. And they're fighting over an inheritance. Two deadbeat sons fighting over the money of their father. And they want Jesus to serve as the mediator. 
And Jesus wisely refuses to get involved. Never get involved when brothers are fighting over an inheritance. Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Think of this from what you know. Here's Jesus who came to die, to suffer on a cross, to bear the sins of the world, to rise from the dead. And here are two brothers who have nothing more to do with Jesus than for him to settle some inheritance dispute. You'd think they know better. You'd think we'd know better. How many families do you know have been torn apart by inheritance disputes with everybody demanding their so-called fair share of something they didn't even earn? Jesus uses the incident as a warning to his disciples. You watch out. You be on guard against all sorts of covetousness. That seemingly polite, almost secret, and downright American sin of the heart, the heart unbuckled from God, the heart that, like Velcro, sticks to anything and everything. St. Paul calls covetousness idolatry. It's idolatry because it starts in the heart. The heart is an idol factory, Luther said. It cranks out idols one after the other. And it's not that you have to make a piece of wood into something and bow down to it. It's whatever you fear and love and trust the most. Whatever you seek satisfaction and identity and meaning from, that is your idol. And it usually isn't in God we trust. It's usually in gold we trust. I think they misspelled that on our money. Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, not money, nothing wrong with money. The love of money is the root of every kind of evil, and we will do most anything to get more of it. Jesus tells this parable of a rich man who had this unusual bumper crop one year. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Notice that. It's the land. He did nothing. He was sitting back watching ESPN. And out in the field, the fields were just brimming because the rain was good, the sun was right, everything was happening, and he had a bumper crop. Like most riches, the man had little to do with it. Most often, being rich is just plain dumb luck. Being at the right place at the right time. And his excess created a crisis. What to do with it? Where to store it? And so he sits down at the kitchen table and he spends all night poring over plans, an ambitious building plan. You know, that's what happens when you run into unexpected wealth. You get ambitious, you get greedy, you grab for more. Tear down the old barns, build bigger ones, borrow against equity. Go ahead and build so I can store my grain and my goods. And then after he was done building, he had a nice retirement plan somewhere where he could finally say to himself, Soul, you've got it all. Relax. Eat, drink, kick back, have some fun. After all this hard work, one small problem. Hmm? There was a little blood vessel in his brain that was about to pop at 2 a.m. And his life would be over. And all the things that he labored over and all the things that he worried about and all the plans for all the big buildings and everything else would wind up where? In probate court, where some fool would benefit from all of his labors. And then what? It's a tragedy played out so often 
the rich man who has no joy over his riches. Got to pause here. Uh, notice that uh, Swirla here is sticking tight to the text, and he's updated it just a little bit. I, I do detect he's engaging in just a wee bit of contextualization, but it's not distracting from the message one bit. In fact, it's kind of bringing it to life. The the way he's described the story, it's like, yeah, we we've all seen this one play out before, and pray to God that we don't ever have to see it again, knowing that we just might. Or more commonly, the person planning for retirement who never makes it to retirement. A plan cut short by cancer, a heart attack, an accident. I've said it before, retirement's highly overrated. Enjoy it now. Enjoy it now. As the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, it's all vanity, it's emptiness, it's meaningless, there's nothing, it's chasing after the wind. So then what? <laughs> What's the alternative? How then to live? The answer, of course, comes from St. Paul in his third chapter of Colossians. And he bases what he has to say on the fact that our life is in Christ. That we are already in Christ Buried, raised, and glorified. We died to this life even before our death. Baptism joined us to the death of Jesus and buried us in his grave. And it said, Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, and you have been raised with Christ, and you are seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's where your life is, at the right hand of God in Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said. And all these things, all this stuff you worry about, what you're going to eat, wear, drink, it'll be added to you, don't worry. But first the kingdom, the things that are above, the eternal things, which you will have forever. What lasts forever, thanks to Jesus. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. Again, fix your minds that are renewed in Christ on eternal things, not temporal things. Why? Because you died. That's right. You're already dead to this world. That's what the rich man didn't realize. He was dead. He was dead before he died. Had he recognized that, he might have enjoyed things a little bit more. Because one of the nice things about being dead is you've got nothing to lose. And all that stuff that you own that's piling up in your garage and in the attic and the closets of your life, that's not your life. That's just your stuff. Your life, your real life, the true you as God created you and as God intends you to be is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden. You can't see it. You can't see it in your reflection in the mirror. It's hidden. You must be told this by God or you wouldn't know it. And so what does it mean? It means contrary to what Joel Osteen and all the prosperity preachers are telling you, that the abundance of your life is not having an abundance of things, but of being in Christ 
and of receiving the abundance of forgiveness and life and salvation that he has come to give you. It means that your life as you now live it is not a matter of building bigger barns to store more grain so you can enjoy some retirement in the future, but living life by faith in the Son of God who loved you and who laid down his life to save you and who gives you in an abundance more than you could ever dare to ask or imagine. And it means this also with respect to our stuff. It means we hold our possessions loosely with a dead open hand of faith. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. Abraham had stuff. David had stuff. Solomon had lots of stuff. And he wrote to warn us about what it's like to have lots of stuff. But stuff can only be held and enjoyed if it's held loosely or you won't enjoy it. I'll give you an example. Buy a brand new car, okay? It's all shiny, nice finish, no dents, it's perfect. What's your biggest fear? Yep, someone's going to ram it with a shopping cart in the parking lot and put a ding in that flawless finish. And so what do you do? You park the car way over on the back side of the parking lot and you look around to see who the neighbors are. And you certainly don't park it next to a car like mine. You know, because you know, any guy, you know, doesn't wash his car, he's going to bang my car. You know, I won't, but, you know, you kind of think that. And you don't enjoy a minute of it because you're always kind of looking around your car to see if somebody dinged you. And then, boy, when somebody does, that's it. In fact, you don't even like the car anymore. It's dinged. I think cars should come pre-dinged. Just kind of whack at them a little bit. Then you can enjoy it. You know, just buy a used car. I don't know. But, but the problem is that you don't enjoy the thing for what it's made for, driving because you're so afraid of, you know, that stone kicked up from the freeway, that shopping cart. If it's already dinged, who cares, you know? You do not know the day, the hour your life will end. We have no idea. And what's the point wasting it worrying over the stuff you have, like that foolish rich guy agonizing his brains when he's got less than 12 hours to live? What would you do if you knew you only had 12 more hours to live? (laughs) See, that's where idolatry is going to get you. Your idols wind up consuming you, robbing you of every last ounce of joy that the gift of God can bring you. But if you hold these things with the dead hand of faith, trusting that even if you lose everything, you've lost nothing because you have it all in Christ then there is that freedom to enjoy and use and even give away and employ. You know, one wise church father, I think it was Ambrose, said this of the rich man. He had plenty of storage space in the empty mouths of the hungry around him. He didn't need to build bigger barns. Hmm. Wow. Ambrose is right. Solomon in all his wisdom said this, there's nothing better for a person that that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Ah, there's the secret. Apart from God, who can have enjoyment in anything? 
Without God at the center, without Jesus square in the middle, redeeming all things, reconciling all things, making all things new, there is no lasting enjoyment. It's just going to be chasing after the wind. Just a race against decay. An emptiness that can't be filled no matter how much stuff you try to plug into it. It's no way to live, my friends. It's no way to have a life chasing after the wind. You're baptized. You're baptized into Christ and your life is held in Christ in a way that you cannot hold your life. And when Christ appears, you too will appear with him in glory and you will see the treasure that you have now in him. And until then, go and enjoy your work and enjoy your food and enjoy your drink. It's all a gift from God. As the Hebrew toast goes, l'chaim, to life, to life in in Jesus, to abundant, eternal life in Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Wow. Here's sermon number two on the same text. See, this is biblical preaching. This is Christ-centered preaching. This is law and gospel, sin and grace, oh, and sanctification in Christ. Oh, this is beautiful. God's grace, his mercy, and his peace be multiplied among you, my dear friends and fellow Christians. What a tragedy. Actually, two of them in our gospel lesson for this morning. First, two brothers fighting over an inheritance. That's a tragedy. One of them comes to Jesus. Wise Jesus. Wise as King Solomon. Wiser even. If Solomon could determine whose baby it was when those two women approached him, each claiming to be the baby's mother then Jesus will have no trouble helping these two brothers come to a resolution about something as simple as an inheritance. But Jesus won't have anything to do with it. Man, who made me an arbiter or a judge over you? The brothers have the things of this life in mind. Important things, to be sure. Things that you need lawyers for. But Jesus has salvation on his mind. And so Jesus warns them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. All those things that you think are so dreadfully important in this life, money, property, who is in control of what, whether it's the church, or the government, or the estate, power, status. Take care, Jesus says, and be on your guard against all covetousness, all wanting to be able to control and influence those things so badly because you're so right and the other guy is so wrong, you know, that they get in the way of your salvation. I've seen it happen, even in church, and so have you. It dresses itself up, covetousness does. It dresses itself up in piety, 
And it looks very religious. But nevertheless, it sucks away salvation. Covetousness does. Then Jesus told another story, another tragic story, a parable this time about a rich man who never enjoyed his wealth. A man so busy preparing for the golden years that he missed all of his years altogether. Successful, frugal, cautious. A man bought some land, tilled and kept it, cared for it as best he knew how. He's wealthy. Sometimes wealth has come by honestly. You know, by marrying wealthy widowed heiresses who gain their wealth honestly by marrying other wealthy folks. And sometimes wealth comes is come by accidentally, the Beverly Hillbilly way, or by scratching off winning lottery tickets. Sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes wealth has even come by hard work. And our rich man was a hard worker. Some would call him penny-pinching, frugal, cheap, old, skinflint. Others would call him, ah, oh, but he was a good steward. Fiscally responsible man who accounted for every red cent. Never one to waste time or money. He kept his nose to the grindstone and it all paid off. His land produced good crop. The gentle rains. The rich soil. The bright, warm sunlight. All things, by the way, his hard work had nothing to do with. It all conspired together to give the man a bumper crop. More than he had room to store. Now, just an aside, the uh, early church father, Ambrose, said that when he commented on this text, this rich man had plenty of room in which to store his grain. Plenty of space. In the mouths of, of the poor. But that's not where our rich man wanted to store his grain. Now, isn't it interesting? These two, I feel like there's a conspiracy between Swirla and uh, Hodel here. They must talk. They ha- they have got to hang out together. But uh, you know, here's the deal: they're 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 finding the same things in this text. And he had a comfortable retirement in mind. What shall I do? He said, "For I have nowhere to store my crops." I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Did you notice all the mys? My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul, mine, mine, mine. Our self-made man was living totally blind to the hand of God working underneath all of his dumb luck. And how about you? Do you live blind to the hand of God working behind the scenes of all the things that you touch? So he called his contractor friend, his accountant, his banker, to get the ball rolling. 
Now, quite fortunately, he didn't live in the state of California, and so the permitting process and the governmental red tape was greatly streamlined. <laughs> and he planned and he designed his bigger barns and his retirement. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It all sounds good and quite logical, except for one problem. That night, God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That night, after a glass of two-buck chuck, for remember, he's rather tight. He had a tightness in his chest. He thought it was just indigestion, heartburn. And then his arm and his jaw started to hurt. And he couldn't catch his breath. Dizzily, he, cu- he clutched his chest and slumped over his drafting table, and that was it. That night, he exchanged his combines and hoppers for a hearse. And instantly, his whole estate got tied up in probate. In the end, whatever the government couldn't get their greedy tax hands on went to, well, no one is mentioned. Rich beyond measure, he died alone in an empty house. No wife, no children, no family. After all, when stuff is your aim, there's no time for friends or family. And the only folks who attended his funeral were his tax accountant and his banker. Never once, never once in his adult life did our sad, rich man ever enjoy his wealth. Never once did he take the time to enjoy an extravagant dinner out and then way over tip the server just for the fun of it. Never once did he take the time to take the hand of another and walk on the beach at sunset, even though he lived right next to it. Never once did he sneak away from work without justifying it to anyone in order to sit with a friend and picnic off on the headlands. Never once did he experience the joy of just plain reckless giving. Never once was it his aim to give joy rather than to give orders. Never once does it seem he said to himself, every Lord's Day I'm going to take the time to thank the one who has been behind my every blessing. He was too busy gathering, storing, piling up, investing, wheeling and dealing. So foolish. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity, emptiness, and a striving after wind. Solomon wrote those words, and Solomon knew a few things about wealth. He wrote those words near the end of his life, after having had at his disposal all the good things of this life. Rich beyond the dreams of Midas even, Solomon enjoyed wine and gold and women and Egyptian horses and silver, and women, 
and gardens and an ever-expanding kingdom and women and mansions and education and women and girlfriends. But after having had all the good things of this life, along with a number of things that weren't so good for him, wise King Solomon declared it all vain and empty. In spite of everything he had, all the stuff that people strive for, Solomon said, a man can find nothing better than to eat and drink and be happy in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Perhaps you could boil it all down to, to priorities, right? Priorities. But that would be wrong. It's not that the rich man in our parable failed to put God first in his priorities. That's the wrong line of thinking. That's not the way it works with God. God first, and then my wife second, my family third, and on and so forth. That's like saying, God first, and then all my other idols, second, third, fourth, and on and so forth. God's not first. God's central. God's in the middle of everything. Once we had the baptismal font in the center of the aisle, right back there between the last two pews. I did that to make a point that we are carried into the presence of God in the waters of holy baptism. Someone who's not here, nor were they in the early service, nor were they in the third service. Someone said, a font in the center of the aisle. That will get in the way of weddings. Good point. Your baptism should get in the way of your wedding. And your marriage. And everything else about your life. God's the source. He's the creative word that made everything and holds it all together. All we have. Grain. Barns and all our goods are gifts from the hand of a very gracious God. Whether you recognize it or not. And God is in the middle of all of it. What happens when we fail to recognize that God is in the middle of everything? When we fail to see God in the middle of it all, we turn our stuff into little gods themselves. We start looking to our stuff for our identity, our job for our identity, our bank accounts for our security, for meaning in our lives. And it all ends up failing us. And let me tell you why. Let's just take money for, for an example, since it is part of our gospel lesson for this morning. But you could stick anything. You could stick anything in the place of money. Anything that is of value to you. The reason we don't enjoy our wealth, the wealth that we already have, is precisely because we turn it into some sort of religion. Remember the Lord of the Rings, Gollum, and the ring? From the moment we first see and touch money and learn of its power, we get religious with it. We develop 
creeds about money. A penny saved is a penny earned. Maybe you have knowledge of other creeds as well about money. We have commandments about money. Don't spend all your money in one place. Don't put it all in one basket. Diversify. We have rituals about money. Check its value every day. Count your change. Get a receipt. We treat it as if it's a holy thing. And the result of this financial religion? Anxiety about whether or not we will have enough to last. Greedily seeking more and more of it. Just one dollar more. Stingy with our tips. Afraid that it'll run out. Tossing and turning all night whenever the stock market tosses and turns the day before. All the while not seeing that our idol is consuming us. Our idol is eating us alive. Today we don't build bigger barns, just bigger bank accounts and stock portfolios and little secret stashes of gold bullion so that we're not caught without with, with nothing when the whole monetary system falls apart. God is a jealous God. Not because he is worried about the competition. No, he's jealous because he alone loves us and knows what the idols will do to us. Turn anything into, into religion. Health, wealth, politics, your wife, your husband, your family, your house, your boat, your business. Turn anything into a religion and it will suck the joy right out of you. Because that's what religion does to you. It sucks the joy right out of you. It turns the tables on you and you wind up being servant to the very thing that is supposed to be serving you. You, servant to your money rather than your money being servant to you. Barns full of grain, Bank accounts full of money. It's not bad in and of itself. It's a gift of God. Like everything else. It's the love of money. It's turning money into a religion that robs us of joy. It's the roots of all evil. All kinds of evil. That's what robs us of joy. When you're afraid of losing something, you hold on to it very tightly. But you'll lose it all in the end anyway. There's nowhere and there's nothing safe. Religion is about serving the gods so that the gods will serve you. And ultimately, they never do. Faith in Jesus is different than religion. Faith in Jesus trusts Jesus in his death and resurrection. Faith believes that even right now, as I stand here with all of my assets in life, either appreciating or more the case, depreciating, it doesn't matter. Because I'm safe. And so are you. As Paul told the Colossians, safe, hid with Christ in God. Faith trusts the words of Jesus when he tells us that we've already died in the death of Christ. 
And the life we now live, we live as ones who are awaiting a resurrection that never depreciates. Living by faith, we simply drop dead trusting Jesus who loves us and who died for us. And what's that mean, dropping dead? It means that your life isn't found in yourself, in your possessions, in your titles, in your old glories. It means that as hard as you may try, you know this. You know you cannot save your life by hanging on to it for dear life. The only way to enjoy this life is to live as one who has already died. Because that's what you've done. Dead to the world and alive to God in Christ. In Christ you have all the riches of heaven. Treasure that has been laid up for you that will never depreciate, never rust, never get stolen. In Christ you have the ultimate retirement plan. Eternal life with God and a seat with your name on it at the marriage feast of the Lamb at His kingdom, which has no end. And all that comes to you free, a gift from God to you through Christ. The ancient Greeks had a, had a bumper sticker. Well, kind of. <laughs> and it said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We who know that our lives are safe, hid with Christ and God, can do the Greeks one better. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we live. And speaking of eating and drinking, well, welcome to a foretaste of the inheritance. Welcome to the Lord's table in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. <laughs> Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we live. We are dead to the world. We are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. Our life is hid with Him, and we do have the most amazing retirement plan ever. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in him, even though he dies, yet shall he live. It's so sad when people take this temporal, sinful life and want their good things now. And they turn them into idols. Wow. Abundant life indeed. Abundant life indeed in Christ. It was amazing hearing both these men finding the similar things in, in the passage. And, and the, I don't, there's no collusion going on here. These men are both influenced by the same uh, mentor, by the way. But um, drawing from a similar well. And each putting his own little spin on it. But each dealing with sound biblical doctrine that calls the love of money what it truly is, idolatry, and pointing us to Christ and Him crucified for our sins. 
not to the treasures of this life, but the, the free treasure we have in Christ, who really truly is our treasure. Mm-mm-mm. Yep, both these sermons really truly hit home. And I pray that they hit home with you too. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. Yeah, if you're looking for a way to um, fight money from being an idol, (laughs) you can help support us financially. We're not here to amass a, a, a large amount of wealth. That's not what we're all about. In fact, we really want to know what our budget is. I mean... Take $6.95, multiply it times 1,000, and then multiply that times 12, and that'll give you an idea of what it costs to run Pirate Christian Radio, at least for the last 12 months. And it'll go up a little bit in the next year. We're not here to amass a fortune, to preach heresy, or to tell you to plant a seed of money and that God will give it back to you a hundredfold. No. We're here to do the hard, unpopular, politically incorrect tough work. And yet it's the easiest work ever, to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. There's a lot of opposition to that me- to that message. The scandal of the cross is truly a scandal even to this day. And yet we will continue to unashamedly preach, proclaim, and defend that amazing good news. The good news that God is offering you and me forgiveness of all of our sins and declares us not guilty. Not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ and what he has done for us. There is no greater message that we can think of to constantly rail about, talk about, proclaim, and preach than that. So if you want to support us, you can do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, there's two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute Six dollars ninety-five cents every month of the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. So, what'd you think? I'd love to know what you thought. You can uh, email me your feedback. And um, that email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious, bloody death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.